We're going to stop this morning in our epic journey at uh, a moment in Israel's history that's a sad moment, okay? We've taken a look at David and Solomon and some of the great moments in Israel's history, and you can uh, check out some of those messages online if you want to review or you missed them. But today we're going to look at how all of the work done by David and Solomon to unite Israel and make it one kingdom under God dedicated to the worship of his name, Yahweh, was undone by a few bad leaders and disunity that crept its way into Israel. Upon the death of Solomon, his son Rehoboam ascended to the throne of Israel. And where Solomon was a wise man, his son Rehoboam was a foolish man. And during his life, Solomon endeavored to build the kingdom of Israel into a nation that could rival Egypt and Syria. I'm sorry, Assyria. He taxed the people of Israel to do this. He put them into forced labor in some instances, and he conscripted them to serve in his army so that he could build this kingdom and and amass great wealth and construct these storehouses to provide for his people. And while Israel had grown in majesty through the efforts of Solomon, the people, as a result of his work, were very tired. They were beaten down, they were worn out, they were spent from the labors of Solomon, which sets the scene for our passage in 1 Kings chapter 12, and if you uh, would like to turn there, I'd encourage you to do that. It's so long, I didn't have space to put it in the handout this week, so I'm going to have you just listen along as our elder Doug reads 1 Kings 12, verses 1 through 20 for us. I'd like to do something a little different. Um, If you'd stand with me, if you're able, uh, and honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the king of Nabat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet still alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions." So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, 
the, Sh the Shilonite to Jeroboam and the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel, who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor. And all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. You may be seated. So the, the application is don't listen to the counsel of young men. And we're, we're done. No, obviously not. Um, this, is, uh, this is the moment of Israel's division. And Israel has been divided ever since this moment. But the truth is that, that massive historical moments like this very rarely, if ever, happen in just a moment, okay? Reach back in your memory with me to a history class, probably in middle school, and you remember that the killing of Archduke Franz Ferdinand was what started World War I. But any history book will tell you that that conflict was one that was brewing for decades among these powerful nations in Europe, and that's what truly caused World War I. And the same is true for the divided kingdom of Israel. Okay, Rehoboam's stupidity to push the people of Israel even further into forced labor was the moment where the division happened. But the cause had been slowly brewing for some time. So I want to touch on these things. Okay? First, there was a familial reason. To put it more succinctly, tribal animosity was the first reason why the kingdom of Israel was divided. If you remember, all 12 tribes of Israel have common ancestry in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They all trace their lineage back to those patriarchs. But upon entering into the promised land, these family members immediately began bickering, squabbling, and infighting. And the Old Testament histories, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, uh, those books, Samuel, uh, they're filled with anecdotes little funny story, well, funny, little stories, I guess we could say, about the various tribes fighting each other like siblings often do. And so almost from the very beginning, the seeds of disunity were sown. And Israel managed to get along, but they rarely ever saw each other as one united family under Yahweh. And so the first reason for the disunity in the nation of Israel was tribal animosity. The second reason, a practical reason, was taxation and labor. Okay, the text tells us that Solomon made the yoke very heavy for the people of Israel. And Rehoboam, in his pride, only made that problem worse. In fact, when he tells Israel that he's going to uh, make their burden even heavier and discipline them with scorpions, they respond in verse 16 by saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Israel or in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, and look now to your own house, O David. And to translate that for you, what they're saying is, we've had it with the dynasty of David. We don't want to be under his authority any longer. Take care of yourself, David, and the rest of Israel will take care of ourselves, but we're out of here. We're done with this. 
And what this cry from Israel hints at is the context of the government bureaucracy that Solomon set up. The tribe of Judah was exempt from the forced labor and taxation that the rest of Israel was subject to under Solomon. Solomon left his own people without having to pay taxes or engage in the forced labor. And so for all of his wisdom, all of Solomon's wisdom, he played favorites with his own tribe of Judah, and in so doing, he widened this rift between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And a great resentment grew among the people because of Solomon's special treatment of his own tribe, as you might expect in a family, right? And eventually they got to the point where they'd had enough. They stoned Adoram, the taskmaster, to make it clear that they wouldn't put up with it any longer. And they stormed off to set up their own kingdom. And they raised up uh, Jeroboam. So the second reason for disunity in Israel is privileges and favorites. I don't know, maybe you grew up in a family where you can relate to that. Maybe your, your parents gave privileges or, or played favorites with your siblings. The third reason for the disunity and finally the split between Israel and Judah is a theological reason. In Jerusalem, which was the, cap, uh, the capital of the, Isra- of the nation of Israel, you had the temple. And the temple had within it the Ark of the Covenant and, and the altar for sacrifice. These things that represented the very presence of God in the temple in Jerusalem. And essentially, Yahweh, the God of Israel, revealed himself exclusively to his people in Jerusalem at the temple. Now, in contrast, in the northern parts of the kingdom, in places like Shechem and Bethel and Dan and Shiloh, Israel was prone to set up these, uh, these places of worship to idols, to false gods. Rather than worship Yahweh in Jerusalem, they went to these other places to worship idols. And in truth, Israel in general, Judah and the northern uh, tribes, they had this unbelievable tendency to drift away from God into worship of false gods and idols in general. But the fact of the matter was that in Jerusalem, in Judah, was the heart of worship for the nation of Israel. And further exacerbating uh, the location of Jerusalem in Judea, or I'm sorry, in, in Judah, further exacerbated these issues, these divides between north and south, and caused greater disunity. And so all of these issues were bubbling underneath what was going on in Israel, until one day Rehoboam makes this really foolish decision by taking the advice of these cocky younger advisors who know nothing about wisdom. And the kingdom, as a result, is torn in two, north against south, with the northern kingdom deciding to make Jeroboam king and the south following Rehoboam, who was the rightful heir to the throne of David. Okay, we're going to touch on Rehoboam and Jeroboam, but before we get into that, I want to point out some similarities of the disunity in Israel and the disunity that we often find in churches today. Because there's wisdom, I think, for us to learn here. And I would say, I don't think that our church struggles with disunity right now. So let's talk about it now while we're doing well, so that when it becomes an issue down the road, we're prepared to deal with that, okay? I heard a good joke recently uh, about a guy who was stranded on a desert island for a long time. Maybe you've heard this one. And when he was finally rescued, the rescuers noticed that he had built three huts on the island. And so they, they asked him, three huts, what's the first hut for? And he says, oh, well, that's, that's where I lived. They said, okay, what's the second hut for? He said, well, that's where I go to church. 
And they said, well, what about the third hut? He says, oh, that, that's where I used to go to church. I mean, even, a, even one individual can't get along with himself in church, so he has to build another church so that he can say that's where he used to go to church. So it's no secret that when you go to a church, you're, you, might, you might find some disunity. But God, I think, redeems even that in the sense that we all have some different preferences. And so if you don't like a pastor who doesn't wear a tie or you don't like using a guitar on stage, well, you can probably find a church somewhere in the neighborhood where the pastor does wear a tie and they use an organ instead. Okay, So God redeems the disunity and uses it to reach more people stylistically. And I think that that variety is a very good thing. And there are legitimate reasons to leave a church, I would say. If you encounter bad theology or rogue leadership or unbiblical teaching or actions or unaddressed sin, then those are all legitimate reasons to leave a church. But the simple fact of the matter here is that there's a whole lot of disunity in the church that is simply unacceptable and it shouldn't be tolerated. I mean, how often do churches look a lot like Israel with squabbling and gossip and bickering and little tribes? And again, it it shouldn't be tolerated. Read the New Testament and you see that this has always been a problem for the church, unfortunately. And these little things brew and they build over time because people don't address the issues as they arise until one day one thing happens and it just pops and the whole church is torn asunder, maybe in two groups or even three groups. I remember a street back in Wheaton where I used to live, and you had four churches in a row on this street corner, you know, as if they didn't get along, so they moved next door and started a new church, but that didn't last long. They divided, and they moved next next door and started their own church, and it happens. And so God forbid that we ever become a church at Maricopa Springs that's destroyed from within by disunity. Let that never be the case for Maricopa Springs. So let me address these things so we can learn from Israel about church dysfunction and disunity. First, within the church, we have tribal animosity that comes up from time to time. You find this too frequently within churches. I remember long ago, my dad was the pastor of a church back in the Midwest. We were on sabbatical in England. We were there for six months. And the small group that my dad was a part of was a small group filled with church leadership. Not only people on staff, but some of the real influential people in the church. And while my dad was over there, while our whole family was over there, he was working on a book, some small disagreement arose between two couples in this small group. And the the disagreement began to swell and to swell. Instead of being a little thing, it became a big thing. And then people in the small group began taking sides rather than work to resolve it. And then to strengthen their positions in opposition to each other, these two tribes from the same small group began to gossip and slander each other in the church to gain power and support for their side. And remember, these were leaders within this church. And when we came back from England, the whole thing was this tragic mess. We hadn't even been home a full 24 hours when delegates from both sides of the disagreement were sent to my parents' house to inquire which side my family was going to take in the issue. And because my dad refused to take a side, several months later, he was told by the senior pastor that he needed to pack his bags and go, that his tenure at that church was done. And the point is this, there are no tribes within the body of Christ. 
The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one body together, and Christ Jesus is our head, and we submit to Him, and we love His body, the church. And so we, we attempt with all of our power to not take any side except the side of Scripture. Let's discern what the Word of God says in relation to this issue and seek to interpret it as accurately as possible and apply it to the situation. And we do everything in our power to work to resolve our differences lovingly and humbly and peaceably like a family or a team that functions the way that it should. Unified and working towards the same goals in Christ Jesus. And you know the really sad thing for Israel in this situation? is that they were discrediting the name of Yahweh when they fought among themselves. To these pagan nations looking in at Israel, the name of God was profaned by their lack of unity. And the same thing is true in the church today when we can't figure it out and figure out how to lovingly be unified. The world is watching us to see if we live by the message of love and grace that we say our Lord and Savior Jesus taught. And disunity in the church, it makes Jesus look bad and it makes us look foolish. And so tribes and factions within our church should never be tolerated. We follow Jesus and nobody else, truly. Now second, Israel grew in resentment because Solomon played favorites with Judah. And so pray, too, that our church is never guilty of giving power to the wealthy people because they write the big checks. And pray that our church is, conversely, never playing favorites to the poor people because social justice is trendy. And pray that we never coddle political leaders because they have power. And pray that we never favor anyone race or nationality or social status or career path over another. Pray that we never play favorites towards our pastors or our staff as if doing ministry full-time for a paycheck was anything better than doing ministry without a paycheck because you too are called to minister in the place that God has led you. God forbid that we love any one person or group of people in our church more than we love Jesus. Let us not be defined by favoritism. Jesus alone deserves all of our favoritism and our honor and our worship and our attention. And so wherever you see the sin of favoritism in our church, call it out as sin and let's deal with it rather than let it be bred into disunity. And third and finally... Israel was divided for theological reasons, or maybe more succinctly because of idolatry. Within the church, this one's a little bit more tricky. I like to use the phrase, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity, which just means love. Let me unpack that a little bit for you. The first part, in essentials unity, okay? What that means is that there are some things that we know to be true and we will not budge on those things as a church. We will never be a church that loses our focus on Christ crucified and in so doing then falls into idol worship. Okay, that's not going to be Maricopa Springs. 
And when I speak about essential theological beliefs at Maricopa Springs, I mean that we have some things that we require you to believe if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and this is the church that you have decided to be a part of. Okay? Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's okay. You're still welcome. We're not going like, to force you to, to sign anything. Okay? But our expectation, hear me loud and clear, our expectation is that in time, you will conform your beliefs to these essential truths of the Christian faith or make the decision that you won't conform your beliefs and leave. Okay? I'm going to be straight up. We are here to convert you. That's why we're here. We want you to come to believe what we believe. There's no secret about it. I want you to know the joy of Jesus. I want you to know that joy. And so I encourage you to either make Jesus your Lord and stay or refuse to do so and leave, but don't spend the rest of your life just sitting on the fence trying to decide. Do the work that you need to do to come to the same conclusions that I've come to and that so many other people in this room have come to. You know where we stand as a church. And as long as you come to church here, we are going to lovingly pressure you to give your life to Jesus. And so either join us in our convictions or make the decision you won't and go away because we're not going to stop doing that. And that choice is yours. We're not going to force you into it. This is not some cult where we are going to force you to do something against your will. But whatever you do, do not waste your life debating it. Do the necessary work that you need to do to make up your mind because this decision is crucial. But as far as where we stand as a church, we're not going to bend in our conviction that these essential uh, things are true regardless of how other people feel or how hard our culture pressures us to change or whatever other persecution we may suffer as a result. Death or trials or suffering or pain, we will not bend from believing these things. Now someone said to me recently very wisely, well, who decides what the essentials are? Who decides? And maybe you're sitting here wondering what these essentials are that I keep referencing, okay? That's a great question, which is why we have a statement of faith. You can access it at the bookstore or online through our website. So you can take a look at it and see what Scripture says about these important essential issues. And I'm saying that the things in our statement of faith are the essentials. So pick one of those up and study it for yourself. I brought copies so you could have one, okay? But as a church... We will not have variations on these essentials. These are the things that we have to be unified on. Things like Jesus was God. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. And there is no salvation for mankind except through him. We're not going to budge on those things. So in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, this means that there is room for diversity of belief beyond the essentials. Okay, there's freedom to interpret some of Scripture differently. If you're a Calvinist or Arminian, you're welcome here. You are free to have your perspective, provided you can use the Bible to validate your perspective. And we may ask you to do that. If you're very opinionated on something that you think the Bible says, then don't be surprised if we say, please show me where it says that. 
If you're a dispensationalist or covenant theology, you're welcome here and you're free to have your perspective, provided you can use the Bible to validate it, so you may need to do some further research. If you're pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, or like Doug likes to say, uh, pan-millennial, that's fine with us. You are welcome here, but again, be prepared to use the Word of God to defend the position that you hold biblically. And the key here is that you're going to be, if you're going to be vocal and adamant about your opinion in these matters, then your position needs to be supported by Scripture. It cannot just be opinion. Okay? Your personal feelings or your world philosophy needs to come under the authority of the Word of God. And what we're asking you, basically, is to just be a student of God's Word. That's what we want. And in all things, charity means that when we're done hotly debating the things that we disagree on, we end our debate or our argument or our discussion. We do that by affirming our unity and our love for Jesus and for one another. Okay? I have this sneaking suspicion that when we get to heaven, well, maybe not you, but me, when I get to heaven at some point, Jesus will come to me and say something like, Hey, Grady, I'm so proud of you. You really got it right on this thing. Great job. This thing. But you were so far off on all of these other things. You were just way wrong, beyond wrong. So let me straighten you out, okay? And it's important that we never let the secondary theological opinions that we might have weaken or divide the church. If we can discuss and debate them and force each other to search God's word to discover and interpret it more accurately, then we are stronger for our disagreements, Those things are good things. And so we should debate and argue and challenge one another to come to a deeper understanding of God's word and a more passionate love for Jesus. But the moment that those discussions or those arguments move beyond a loving debate and into animosity and division, then we are living in sin at that point and we run the risk of sinking the ship through disunity. So let us not be defined by those kinds of things because Jesus calls us to unity. And in fact, the only prayer in the whole Bible that was prayed specifically for you and specifically for me is found in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. Let me read it for you. In the middle of praying for his disciples, specifically his disciples, Jesus stops to pray for all the Christians who will believe in him through their message, which is you and me, And what does he pray of all things? He prays for unity. Listen, he says, I do not ask for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And whatever our differences of opinions may be on the non-essentials, what Jesus wants for us is to be unified together, to be one through our love and devotion to him so that the world would know that Jesus is Savior and Jesus is King. That's unity within the church. But I, I need a couple more minutes to touch on Jeroboam and Rehoboam to show you how Jesus foreshadows this. And I'll bring it back, okay? 
Read with me 1 Kings chapter 12, if you still have your Bibles open. Just a couple quick verses, 25 through 28. Rehoboam becomes king of Judah. Jeroboam becomes king of Israel. And here's how it goes down. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to, the, uh, to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. And then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So Jeroboam, who becomes king over the tribes in northern Israel, looks out at his kingdom and realizes that if the temple is in Jerusalem, then he is at risk of losing his people when they go to Jerusalem to worship God. Their loyalties will be first to God and second to him. And without people to be his subjects, he is not a king. So he devises a plan to make sure that he can keep his power. He makes two golden calves, and he sets them up in their temples, their own temples, so that he can maintain religious control over the people. And in other words, he forsakes God so that he can continue to be served as king. And in essence, his foolish judgment is not all that different from Rehoboam, the king of Judah. Rehoboam listens to the counsel of the young advisors because he is king and he likes the idea of maintaining control. He likes the idea of continuing to build up Israel for the glory of his own name. And so Rehoboam too is a king who sits on his throne not to serve but to be served. And so both of these men, Rehoboam and Judah, And Jeroboam in Israel were concerned with their own kingdoms. They were not concerned for their people. They were concerned for themselves. But the position that Jesus takes in contrast as king was exactly the opposite. I know I'm jumping around Matthew 10, verses 42 through 45. Let me read it. It says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered... Uh, rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says this to his disciples after James and John come to him, And they ask Jesus to give them a special place of power and privilege and prestige in his kingdom when he restores the kingdom of God to earth. Specifically, they ask him, let us sit at your left hand and your right hand when you come in glory, when you bring your kingdom. In other words, give us the places of honor and glory and power and dominion when you become king. And in response, Jesus points to the reality of the world And how different it is from the reality that he is bringing. How different his actions are from the normal actions of humanity. He says kings and queens, they have power and authority. They use it to their own benefit. They lord it over you. 
Like Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they use their power to be served. But Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. To lay himself down so that others might be raised up. And Jesus didn't come in pride, he came in humility. Jesus gave up everything. He gave up his glory. He gave up his equality with God, his life, so that, he, so that we might be like him. And what does it mean then to be like Jesus? It does not mean that we are great. It means that we are servants, that we are lowly. And this right here, guys, this is the secret of unity in the church, I think. Disunity comes when a pastor wants power and honor and glory and prestige. And so he manipulates people to get it. Disunity comes when an elder builds tribes for himself within the congregation to get his way, to broker power and make decisions. Disunity comes when members of the church bicker and fight and gossip and jostle their way to more power and honor within the church. Disunity comes when people who should be following Jesus lose sight of him. And like James and John, they begin to think about, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? About how the people around them in the body of Christ might be used to serve their own objectives. And these people forsake the death of Jesus, the slavery of Jesus, the servanthood of Jesus, And they try to use Jesus and his kingdom for their own advantage. And the church suffers. And people become wounded. They get hurt and damage is done. And sometimes it's never undone within that church. And what we see is Jesus flips the whole idea of greatness on its head. Do you want to be great? Do you want to be great? Then be nothing. And make Jesus everything. The more that Jesus increases in your life and the more you decrease, the greater you will be. Like John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. And there's nothing more, this is nothing more, I'm sorry, than just honest humility. Honest humility. Jesus is great. I am not. To be like Jesus is great. To be great apart from Jesus is nothing. To be great is to be like Christ. To live a life of self-sacrifice and humility, reflecting Jesus in all his beauty and love. That is glorious. And Jeroboam and Rehoboam, they wanted to be great, and so they glorified themselves. But we know better. We know that greatness is only possible for us when we are like Jesus because he is great and we are not. So here's the real simple formula. You're one step to your best life now. That was supposed to be a joke, but... Keep looking at Jesus on the cross because that keeps you humble. When you see Christ in front of you, when you see that Jesus died for you, when you see that God bled for you, that the king perished like a criminal so that you could be royalty, 
and you realize just how little you have before this God, and when you see all that Jesus did for you, and you realize that your position before him is lowly, and that all you have is Jesus, then you realize you have nothing apart from him. And then you look around you at the people in this room, the people who are a part of your church, and you remember that all they have is Jesus. And then you see that what we have in common is Jesus. Jesus is all that we share, and he is the greatest thing. And if we have Jesus in common, then we have everything in common, no matter how different we may be. And so unity and humility and greatness, it's all found in the same place. It's all found by keeping our eyes fixed on the cross where Jesus gave up everything to redeem us. Let me pray. God, help us to be people who keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to see the truth of our lowly position as we look at our dear Lord and Savior crucified. And let us see that greatness comes in knowing you, Jesus, and in being like you, Jesus, and in pursuing you. God, would you help us to be servants? Would you help us to be unified? Would you help us to know uh, your word well enough to stand for the things that we believe, but to be unified and to serve one another as we pursue you? We thank you for your son, Jesus, who gave us the example of greatness and went to the cross, who gave up everything for our sake, and we praise you. Amen.